we've worked with Nevin and group on looking a little bit at the SARS-CoV-2 eruption off the cell surface. You can also see it on the flatter part of the plasma membrane, but certainly you see loads of it coming off the filopodia as well. And so this starts asking the question, how, how exactly are things attaching, getting in, doing their thing inside the cell and getting back out? Welcome to Biologists Being Basic, a podcast where we talk about basic research, why we care about it, and why you should too. I'm your host and resident basic biologist, Robin Cake. Each episode, I'm joined by fellow UCSF scientists, as well as non-scientist friends, to ask questions, talk science, and have fun. The clip you just heard was Elizabeth Fisher, chief of the Rocky Mountain Laboratory's microscopy unit, part of the NIH National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease, based out of Hamilton, Montana. In this clip, Dr. Fisher is describing one of her remarkable scanning electron microscope images of SARS-CoV-2 viruses budding off of tentacle-like cellular protrusions called filopodia. In our previous episode, we look at a recent publication that identified human proteins that the SARS-CoV-2 virus needs in order to survive. In today's episode, second of a three-part mini-series about research into the SARS-CoV-2 virus, we discuss a second paper from QBI scientists that was recently published in Cell and is titled the global phosphorylation landscape of SARS-CoV-2 infection. In this article, we look at SARS-CoV-2 infected cells and identify signaling changes that occur inside the cell that promote an environment beneficial for the virus. This includes a reorganization of the cellular skeletal elements that help the cell grow new filopodia for a virus to escape from. Using this data, we identify key proteins called kinases that regulate these intracellular signaling events and tested compounds that could inhibit those pathways, ultimately identifying a number of inhibitors that show strong antiviral effects against SARS-CoV-2, some of which are now being considered for clinical trials. Today, we are gonna discuss the paper and how these findings can help in the fight against the global pandemic. Helping me with this discussion is the first author of the paper and my good friend and colleague, Mehdi Buhudu. Hi, Robin. So I am a postdoctoral fellow at UCSF working with Nevin Krogan, and I study cancer signaling. And the main um, impetus behind my research is to try to understand why one patient's tumor is different from another patient's tumor and how we can match drugs to a specific patient's tumor. And joining us and making sure we stay on point will be non-scientists, expert humans, Gina and Andrew. Hi, I'm Gina, and I do all things communications and events for QBI, which stands for the Quantitative Biosciences Institute at UCSF. And I'm Andrew Tran. Um, I work as a physical therapist um, over at San Francisco General Hospital and also taking on the role of the acting supervisor there for outpatient physical therapy. Um, San Francisco General is part of the San Francisco Department of Public Health, so we are actively involved in the COVID-19 response and how we are playing into the overall management of this when it comes to the actual patient population too. So I'm really happy to be here and excited to hear what you guys all have to say and that's all. Okay, thanks guys. Let's get started. In the last episode with Michael, Megan, and Alexa as our guests, um, we had talked about a paper published in Nature that looks at the physical interactions between viral proteins and human proteins. Um, and then we talked about how we used that data to try to repurpose existing drugs for the treatment of COVID-19. 
Today, we're going to look at uh, signaling networks inside the cell and examine how SARS-CoV-2 rewires these networks to manipulate the cell, um, basically transforming it into an environment that helps the virus replicate and does what the virus wants. So the type of signaling networks that we're going to focus on today center around a group of very specialized proteins called kinases. Um, and the type of signal that they use is um, in the form of a protein modification called phosphorylation. So Mehdi, being as your specialty is in cellular signaling pathways, do you want to tell us a little about signaling pathways in general inside the cell and the role that protein kinases and phosphorylation plays in propagating cellular signals? Yes. So that's a really good question, Robin. Um, signaling pathways are essential to almost every cellular process. Um, basically in your cells, you have things called proteins, like you've alluded to, and those proteins are the molecular machines that do the work in the cell. They actually sort of translate, um, signals into uh, an effect. So for example, when a cell wants to divide, a bunch of proteins need to get together and communicate, um, but to transmit that signal to tell the cell to divide, for example. So what a signaling pathway essentially is, is a bunch of proteins um, that are sort of in a pathway, one activating um, another in sort of a stepwise fashion, typically. Um, and that sort of leads to some sort of downstream effect. And kinases, as you mentioned, are an integral part of these signaling pathways. Yeah, so I've always thought of cellular signaling kind of like as these like programs within a cell almost that like um, if the cell wanted to do something specific, it would activate that one program and it would have this kind of like feed feed forward or feedback loop that would help it like propagate a signal. Um, I, given that I know nothing about computers really, uh, I've always imagined it was similar to how like computer coding would work in that like there's these sets of instructions that kind of carry on in their own way once you get them started. But um, I don't know, that's how I've always thought of cellular signaling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of times it can be used to amplify a signal, right? So the cell can receive a little signal on the cell surface, and then that signal can then be amplified in the cell through a stepwise process. Um, so, you know, the first, the first set of proteins in that process can be on the order of, you know, uh, 10 different proteins or something like that, but then it can propagate to hundreds of different proteins and thousands of different proteins, which can really start to amplify a signal downstream. So that's sort of similar, I think, to how a, com a computer would work. So Mehdi, um, you mentioned about how kinases kind of play an integral part of the signaling pathways. Can you elaborate that a little bit more? So basically what signaling pathways are is proteins talking to each other, right? Um, so like, you know, protein A needs to tell protein B to do something. Um, and um, so the way that it does that in, in some instances of signaling is by adding what's called a phosphoryl group to, um, to, to the protein. And there are certain proteins that do this and they're called kinases. So kinases specialize in catalyzing these reactions. Um, so are they like messengers? Yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of, sort like of? A, yeah. it's sort of like a switch. It's sort of like when, when a protein, when a kinase puts a phosphate group on another protein, it sort of acts as a switch to turn that other protein on or to turn it off. So there's 
these molecules inside of a cell and it's like the kinase is gluing it to the other protein. Um, and that little piece on that other protein actually changes what that protein does now. So the, you know, this little molecule being glued, glued to it either changes its shape or its ability to interact with other things, or it changes its ability to go certain places inside the cell. Sometimes it like recruits other things or gets moved to different places. So like kinases are like the, the thing that adds the glue. <laughs> like an activator catalyst. Yeah. Yeah. It's like an activator basically. And sometimes kinases can phosphorylate each other, right? And they can activate each other. So you often see in what's called the signaling pathway, you see a, a string of kinases that regulate each other. And, and the, the tricky thing about phosphorylation is you don't know if it's activating or inhibiting. So there's this really complex sort of interplay between all these proteins in the cell. And we almost have to study, you know, every single one of them to really understand how, how they're affecting the signaling pathway. So that's sort of the complexity of, of biology. And, and there are like a, between 500 and, and 700 different kinases, right? So if you imagine that, you know, we on, only understand what a subset of them phosphorylate, what proteins a subset of them phosphorylate. Um, so that really speaks to the complexity of this problem. And if you think about the number of proteins in a human cell, it's, you know, thousands of human proteins in a cell. Um, and each, you know, protein carries multiple phosphorylation sites sometimes. So even one protein could be multiply phosphorylated. Um, and each of these phosphorylation sites could do something different to that protein's function. So what, you know, turned into like a one-to-one, -one, like one protein, one function is actually like way more simplified than what the cell's actually doing since the cell can like change the types of phosphorylation like where it's this phosphorylation lo is loci localized on the protein to like basically change that protein's function in many different ways interesting it's how you get the complexity of a human being so so with kinases they're they're indefinitely activating and acting as a catalyst but with phosphorylation we're not sure if they're activating or inhibiting a certain action is that right? Yeah. So, well, well. So, kinases add phosphate groups. They they create phosphorylations. They add phosphorylations to proteins um, when they're active. Okay. So, when a kinase is active, it's adding phosphorylations to other groups. Um, but what effect those phosphorylation groups have on those downstream proteins can be activating or inhibiting. So, then, why are signaling pathways important? Well, for for this study that we're talking about now. We basically took cells and we infected them with SARS-CoV-2 and we said, okay, where do the phosphorylations change? We were able then to map those back to which kinases are phosphorylating them and say something about their activity. Gotcha. I mean, I think what's um, pretty remarkable is that a virus, so a virus has a very limited genome, meaning it has very few genes that it encodes for its own self <laughs> um, and it steals things from its host in order to complete its replication. So it's basically coming inside of the cell and saying, I need a program to do X. I need a program to make more of my own genome and not any of your genome. 
I need you to be in a specific cell cycle phase for me to best replicate inside of you. Or I need you to have, you know, protrusions so that I can escape easier. And so what it does is it like essentially takes that existing network inside of a cell and it manipulates it to change the cell inside of itself in order to say like, okay, activate your program or turn off the other program that you already had on to benefit the virus, to benefit me and not to benefit the host. So it's actually... It's literally hijacking the system. Right. It's it's pretty like exciting to study these types of things and see, you know, not just what the virus is doing, but how our cells respond as well. And, you know, our cells try to mount defenses against the virus and the virus has to then combat those natural defenses as well. So there's this super complicated battle going on inside of your cells when they're being infected. (laughs) And it's just, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I would add to that just to say, like, I think viral proteins are some of the most interesting proteins that have ever existed on our planet. They're So some of the most highly evolved, um, highly specialized uh, proteins that are just extremely uh, interesting to study, I would say. Even more interesting, I think, than a lot of human proteins, probably. That's more in the eye of the beholder, I would say. <laughs> There's a number of ways that you know scientists around the world study types of signaling pathways. Um, some scientists will study just like one specific pathway, like how people learn about a specific kinase is by studying that one kinase pathway um, really in depth um, and really focusing on kind of looking at how that one pathway responds to various stimuli or some sort of something that changes inside of the cell. Um, our lab, so the lab that Medi and I are both in, um, the Krogan lab, we use what's considered a systems biology approach. And so in the paper that we're going to, uh, we're talking about today, we are using something called global phosphoproteomics. And essentially what that means is our collaborators uh, took permissive cell lines and they infected those cells and then took various samples post-infection and sent us, you know, deactivated cell lysates that we then digested down to smaller subunits and identified the phosphorylation sites inside of them. Um, so we used a series of fairly sophisticated algorithms to try to identify kinases that go up and pathways that are regulated in response to infection. And one of the pathways that was identified as being upregulated during infection was the P38 MAPK pathway. Um, so Mehdi, can you tell us uh, a little bit about this pathway in particular? Like what does it do in a healthy cell versus what it's doing inside an infected cell? Yeah. Um, the P38 pathway is super interesting. When we say the P38 pathway, there's a string of many, many proteins that are involved, many, many kinases that are involved. Um, and typically this pathway responds to stress. Um, so if you stress a cell out, maybe change the temperature of the cell or um, adds a, a toxin to the cell or um, something like that, you tend to activate this pathway. So when we initially saw this result, we actually weren't super surprised and 
Um, we thought it was just the result of the cell being stressed by the virus. Um, we didn't think that there would be actually a, a benefit that the virus would get from this pathway. But what we found, which was really interesting, was that if we inhibit this pathway with a drug, the virus is no longer able to replicate. What we also found, which was interesting, is that this pathway is also known to control the production of cytokines and chemokines. Um, and those are certain proteins that are expressed in cells and released by cells that sort of create an inflammatory response in your body to an infection. So they'll cause recruitment of immune cells um, to uh, the site of infection. What has been known previously is that the p38 pathway can control the production of these cytokines um, and we found that the inhibition of the p38 pathway during uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection reduced the production of these cytokines and that can be good for patients because um, a lot of the adverse events that we've been seeing in the clinic have been due to an overproduction of these inflammatory cytokines which can um, cause a lot of painful and sometimes lethal effects in humans. But why? <laughs> so uh, typically they refer to it as a cytokine storm. It's kind of like this feedback loop that kind of like your immune system goes a little haywire. So it your immune system is supposed to attack an intruder. But in this case, the immune system just attacks, 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 and does too much attacking and actually hurts the person. So you're really playing this fine balance of uh, too much versus not enough immune response. It reminds me of a, an allergic reaction. So like if you have an allergic reaction to a bee sting or maybe, um, you know, like when I eat something, I, I may break out into hives. Yeah. But yeah. like in your lungs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In your lungs. I, th I mean, I think what's interesting is that the body's trying to create a really bad environment for viruses, right? It's trying to create an uncomfortable environment. But um, in doing so, it can also damage your cells because it's just sort of, it's sort of a, 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 a very um, hostile sort of, of reaction that can like damage, that can damage certain essential cellular components, basically. What I find kind of interesting about this is that, you know, you guys talk about how the virus is such an interesting and almost sophisticated, I don't know if that's the right word, sophisticated, you know, thing to study <clears throat> and its actions that it can take on the cell and the host. So if you're thinking about the goal of a virus, right, is to basically infect the host cell and replicate and take over. You know why would it? Why would a virus want to increase cytokine production, which is going to increase inflammation and increase that immunocell response to that area, or even systemically? Like, if that's going to provide an environment that is bad for the virus. Right. That's like the million-dollar question. question. So, um, I think there's various theories about this. Mehdi, you might know better than I you do. Go first. Um, what I'm some of those are? Yeah, say. I'll go first and give the dumb ones, and then Medi can come in. With I, I the don't better know if ones. I will. I'm not an immunologist, but I'll try. But you go first. Um, yeah, <laughs> I will say I am a proteomic scientist. I am not an immunologist or a virologist. But um, one thought would be that it's not necessarily it, its goal is not necessarily to recruit 
immune cells. It might be a product of, so P38 actually does quite a lot. Um, it also manipulates, right, like cell yeah, cycle and cell cycle. other stress response paths. So it could be that it's hoping to hit those pathways. Mm -hmm. And and a side effect is that it also activates cytokines. Basically, there's a lot we don't know. <laughs> that is true of uh, many things in science. <laughs> I'll also say something really interesting that I found um, in studying this was we we found that when we infect cells with the virus, you observe cell cycle arrest in these cells, which means that they stop dividing. Um, and that was sort of interesting to us because one theory in the field is that um, this, this, the virus wants to get to the cell into a specific phase of the cell cycle um, that's, that, that is like favorable to viral replication. And what, what's interesting to me about that is that um, a lot of the machinery that is required for a cell to replicate itself is also required for a virus to replicate itself, right? You need nucleic acids, you need amino acids, you need an influx of these kinds of molecules. And those are in abundance when you're replicating a cell, right? The cell has to produce copies of everything. It has an influx of, of um, amino acids and production of, of nucleic acids. And these are the building blocks for a virus. So, you know, this hasn't, I don't think this has not been officially proven, but this is sort of a hypothesis in the field that basically cellular replication is a fertile ground for viral replication. Um, and that could be uh, topics of future study. Is that unique to SARS-CoV-2? I mean, there's a lot of viruses that arrest cells at various phases of the cell cycle. So, so SARS-CoV-2 arrests cells at G2S phase, which would be when you are basically doubling everything because you're synthesizing DNA. Um, yeah, that, yeah. Before the cell can split in two. So S phase yeah. would be, let's try to double all of the things that we have. So yeah, the idea would be SARS-CoV-2, instead of allowing the cell to make more of itself, is just going to take that yeah, exactly. uh, raw material, basically, that the cell was making more of in order to make it um, itself. Yeah, and this um, might be the purpose for P38 activity. Yeah. But like HIV, also certain strains of HIV will uh, arrest cells um, in, in certain cell cycle phases. Um, yeah, there, there's quite a few viruses that are known to do this. Mm -hmm. um, P38 MAPK was one of the pathways that's altered, but a lot of pathways were actually altered, uh, which is, you know, viruses to many, many things with a, a very small genome. Um, I think one of the really interesting and visual ways that the virus changes um, was uh, kind of actually connected to our PPI paper that we talked about in the first, um, in the first episode of this series, which is that casein kinase 2, um, so the casein kinase 2 family of kinases are actually activated during virus infection with uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. And interestingly enough, we identified the N protein, so nucleocapsid, which is a virus protein, physically interacts with casein kinase 2 subunits. And uh, 
What's really interesting is that if we look at inside of infected cells, we can see them co-localizing with each other using fluorescence microscopy. So we can see these proteins actually being physically in the same location inside of a cell. And that this actually changes the way cells look. So they grow these little tentacle-like philopodia protrusions. So they're kind of um, growing not just... Fingers, like hair. More of them, but they're all branched. And that's where these virus particles are actually assembling. Mm -hmm. So it seems like... And budding. So the... uh, I think this is just like a really cool way that our systems biology techniques actually identified a mechanism that the virus is using to try to spread more. Um, Do you want to talk about casein kinase 2 and maybe what that pathway is and how we think that it's actually making these pretty uh, gross structural changes inside of the cell? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so casein kinase 2 was one of our top hits. Basically, upon infection, it's strongly activated. And what we also found is that if we inhibit casein kinase 2, um, the the um, virus replication goes down. So it does have an antiviral effect. And actually, there's a company that wants to start a clinical trial with, with that drug. Um, so casein kinase 2 in the cell does a lot of things. One of the things it can do is change the cellular cytoskeleton. Um, and basically it can help the cell produce these philopodia-like protrusions out from the cell surface. Um, so we hypothesize that casein kinase 2 is getting activated in order to produce these cellular protrusions because we notice that these appear upon infection. Um, and what's interesting, we collaborated with a group Um, at the NIH, at the Rocky Mountain Laboratories in Montana, who have an electron microscope. Um, And they were able to take images of of cells infected with SARS-CoV-2. And they observed as well, um, in addition to another group in Germany that we worked with, um, they observed these filopodia protrusions. And they observed the virus actually exiting the tips of these filopodia formations creepy <laughs> it's very creepy that word th- those were the headlines <laughs> that is creepy it, yes. that's creepy. it's like right. alien like mutations i don't know it sounds like something from a from a, a sci-fi movie yes yes very scary <laughs> yeah, i remember seeing I, I i follow the ucsf facebook page and i remember them posting a, a video link with showing these what are they, what are they called philopodia philopodia yeah Mm-hmm. For the listeners out there, we'll post some images of this um, on our website. So if you're interested in seeing what this actually looks like, we have, you know, colored versions of the electron micrographs, but just so that you can see what the virus looks like as it buds off of these philopodia. Uh, if I remember correctly, too, it's, it's, you know, this isn't the first time that this kind of behavior is, is found in a virus, right? There's other virus that, Correct. that, Correct. that creates this, these arms. Correct. There are other viruses. Dengue has been known to do this. Vaccinia. Um, there are viruses that have known to produce these. Have been known to produce these protrusions in the in the cytoskeleton. One theory is that it can get a virus closer to another cell without being exposed to the extracellular space for very long, right? Because 
Um, in the extracellular space, it's pretty scary for a virus, right? Because there's immune cells, there's antibodies, there's a lot of things that can attack it. Um, so it's it's sort of a stealthy way potentially to get from one cell to another. Um, in HIV, there's something, there was a discovery made um, of the what's called the viral synapse, which is where HIV can actually cause two cells to fuse at a synapse location, produce a little conduit between them to pass viral particles. So it's definitely not new, but it was really cool to see this for SARS-CoV-2 and that had never been sh shown before, before this paper. Um, so that was really exciting. And gives us kind of um, just another type of pathway that we could target to try to if not prevent viruses from infecting their neighbor cells from slowing down the virus so that the body can mount an effective defense. So um, a lot of what scientists, you know, when we talk about and what, what we do is, is indeed trying to find cures for things. But there's also something to be said about finding something that just slows the process down so that the body's natural defenses can catch up and actually combat the virus. Um, I mean, it's kind of like what we're theoretically, hopefully trying to do as a society, which is to slow the spread of virus infection down so that our healthcare systems, our hospitals, our, you know, our, the people who are taking care of us and trying to keep us healthy have a chance to catch up and have a chance to combat the virus and the damage that it can do. So I, like our bodies are trying to do that too. So there's something to be said about us trying to just slow the virus, its replication on whatever level we can. Or, you know, we talk about statistics in terms of infected cases, in terms of people who have died, but it's very, very damaging to the human body. And sometimes this can cause permanent effects. And I think what's, you know, starting to be recognized and starting to be studied is that the virus also causes things like higher incidence of blood clotting. So even younger people who have been infected have had strokes and heart attacks because the virus, so they've survived the infection and the virus, but the damage to their body remained and they've had blood clots and strokes and permanent lung scarring sometimes. So it's important to note that while you might survive the infection and that might not be tallied in the death count, it could permanently affect the rest of your life. So it's not just that we want to prevent people from dying, which we do. We want to prevent people from dying. But we also want to prevent the long-lasting effects that the virus might have on the human body and try to prevent as many people from being seriously ill, as many people from ending up in the hospital, as many people from having permanent lifelong effects as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. And I think we don't know what a lot of those effects are yet. You know, we barely have studied this virus and it could be that, you know, there are actually some really bad effects that we don't, I don't want to scare people, but it's just that, you know, I think the, the safest bet is to go with prevention. Totally agree. And I can definitely speak from the front line with that about the, some of the long-term effects that patients who had previous COVID infection are presenting with. We're starting to see them in outpatient physical therapy now. 
and just in outpatient like primary care clinics. Um, so from just like a clinical clinical standpoint, patients are complaining of you know just chronic fatigue. They're having exhaustion from just doing day to day tasks in their home. Um, maybe even when they were previously very athletic, right? Um, we're having an increased incidence of stroke, like you mentioned as well, um, and how you're having, in addition to that, just other neurological dysfunctions just from the treatment and the hospitalization in itself. So one of the things that you were seeing in the ICU is that if a patient who has severe COVID-19 infection um, is then intubated to the point where they need intubation and, and need to be placed on a ventilator, um, what they've been trying a lot in the, over the past couple of months is proning these patients, meaning they actually position these patients face down while on a ventilator while having a tube down their throat. And you can imagine how that position for a prolonged period of time, sometimes patients are in this position for weeks, what that can result in in the human body when they come out of that, right? They're going to have trouble with speech. They're going to have trouble with breathing. They're going to have trouble... They're going to have um, nerve injury from their arm being up in an awkward position for days at a time. Their neck is turned to the side because they have a tube down their mouth, but they're face down. And they're going to have these chronic neck issues from here on out. So there's all these secondary things that are coming on, you know, just from having the COVID infection, but also just from the treatment itself, right? The, 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 the standard of care that we're going through right now in, in the hospitals. It's a invisible statistic right it's it's something that people don't see and it's it's something that i think a lot of people don't even think about um when they think about oh but that person survived or oh but that person it, they didn't die or you know that it's like still a fairly traumatic <laughs> experience within a human being's life to have that and and it's probably traumatic for a lot of the people that care about that one per you know one person ending up in the hospital doesn't just affect one person it affects their family their friends uh their co-worker you know a, a single person ending up in the hospital is is a fairly i think traumatic experience that i, I think as a society we should acknowledge <laughs> you know it, there are still catastrophic events that happen to your body when when this type of infection takes hold. And it won't happen to everybody, but it does happen to a significant portion of people. Um, um, so we identified 87 drugs or I guess compounds that could target the signaling pathways that were regulated by SARS-CoV-2. Um, and of those 87, we tested, I think, 68 of them. Correct. And of those 68, we identified seven that target four different signaling pathways um, that ended up having a very strong effect, um, an antiviral effect against SARS-CoV-2. Um, and so some of these, uh, I believe, are actually being considered for clinical trials. Um, do you want to talk about our discoveries that could lead to clinical trials, like which of these you think are fairly promising and what do we mean by when we say clinical trials um, versus a cell, you know, a test in cell models, which is what we've published. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I will say that, um, you know, we highlight seven in the paper. We we think these seven are probably the most promising. But um, if we do an official test to see how, what percentage of our compounds actually showed an antiviral effect without a significant effect on cell viability, we find that about 50% of the compounds we tested show this and have the potential to translate into um, into treatments for, for, for patients. Um, yeah, so clinical trials, what needs to happen? So um, a lot of these drugs are, are FDA approved. Um, some of them are already in clinical trials to treat other diseases. And some of them are still what we call under preclinical evaluation, which means that they're basically just still being tested in the laboratory. Um, so the drugs that are undergoing um, preclinical evaluation will obviously have to go through probably a more um, intense clinical trial process than drugs that are already past phase one. So typically when you do a clinical trial for a drug, the first phase, there are, th there are typically three phases, and the first phase is really to judge, to evaluate the safety of the compound in humans. In healthy um, humans, whereas the second, right? Correct. In healthy humans that do not have the disease, that's correct. Um, whereas the second and third phases are to, to evaluate efficacy of the drug to treat the disease in diseased individuals. Um, but ideally, what we would do is we would then start a clinical trial. Typically, the company that owns the drug, that owns the patent for a drug, will start a clinical trial, will organize a clinical trial, and pay for a clinical trial. Um, clinical trials cost millions and millions of dollars. They're extremely expensive. I think one worry that I've had is that, you know, are these drugs going to reach poor poor people? Are they going to reach disadvantaged communities? Are they going to um, reach the populations that need them the most? And, and I, I'm not sure if that's the case, right? I mean, I mean, as scientists developing these drugs, I mean, that's something that I ask myself all the time is... I mean, as a basic researcher, the bulk majority of our research is government funded. So the public funds what we do and the, the public is helping us try to find a cure for this disease. And our work is, you know, on taxpayer dollars. And essentially what we're doing is to benefit taxpayers and to benefit, you know, the world at large, but the United States who has funded our research. And so I think, yeah, a big fear is that, you know, it's not like we're patenting things. It's we're freely producing our research and putting it out there for whoever wants to take it and try to develop clinical trials, try to develop any type of, you know, medication that could be used to treat this disease. But we don't have any control over how they use that information. So we've put it out there and we want the best science and the best treatments and whatever can help to be done. That's what we want. And we hope that by providing our information, it will be done in good faith and that, you know, the companies that use the government funded research that we are all in a mad dash to publish and put out there, that they'll do the right thing and they'll provide the, the treatment or the cure or whatever they find, that they'll provide it to everybody and that they'll provide it at a fair price to combat, you know, this pandemic that's affecting the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope so. So what, what does this mean for your research? Like you, you, you know, you spend countless hours researching 
which proteins to inhibit. And then these drug companies, they take your research and like, oh, okay, well, here's a drug that I can I can make and mass produce and and um, good luck, researcher. Bye bye. That's it. I think as basic biologists, certainly before the pandemic, and I don't think I I thought a whole lot about it. I always hoped my research would help people. Um, but I was so far removed from the final step, which is the drug that will help someone that you just have a lot of faith. You, you do your part and you think I'm part of a large scientific community. I hope, and I have faith that other scientists will take the baton for me and do the work to produce the next step in the research chain or the next step to where we get to a drug that helps humanity. I think right now it's realizing how much faith we have to put in other people, um, that we don't get a say in a lot of the things that happen next and that the best we can do is shine a spotlight on the thing that we think should happen next. The best that we can do is say, we think this is the best next step and try to point people in the right direction by doing tests and cell models, by trying to talk to people who can do clinical trials, by trying to point them in the right direction. But we don't get a lot of say in how, you know, how to set up the clinical trials or, you know, if and when they happen or, how much drug gets produced or, you know, a price point that gets set for the drug that ends up being made. So it's a huge gap. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say is there's a huge disconnect between academia and industry. Um, And we just sort of hope that industry will take up our findings and create um, a therapeutic that, you know, can either go into clinical trials or, or, or whatever, but um, it's really based on faith. Like there's just, there are some, there are some professors that have good communication with industry partners. Um, in part, uh, Nevin Krogan has yeah. some good contacts, but I think that in general as a whole, there is a, a huge disconnect and, and, um, and it would be, it would be great to try to close that, that gap I mean, part of it is in self-designed, right? So basic researchers are trying to set themselves apart so that the science leads their discoveries. But I do think that there, certainly during the pandemic, I have seen the benefit to reaching out to industry and to establishing better collaborations and better connections with industry so that you there's a mutual trust between basic researchers and the industry partners that are doing the clinical research where you would say like, this is what we think should be studied next. And there's a trust between you that they will say, we agree with you. And we think that this would be worth pursuing. Industry people that I've interacted with are really excited about collaborating with academics. Um, but I don't know, I haven't really seen that many models that work that well so far. Mm. Um, there definitely seems to be a divide. There's a big divide in ideology and culture that's already there. Um, and then there just seems to be a, a st- sometimes a block in, in the flow of information mm-hmm. from one to the other. I think the sad part is the, I think the big block between that happening. So just based on, you know, my own experience with 
doing industry collaborations is a free flow of information also depends on intellectual property and who gets possession of the intellectual property afterwards. And as a scientist, and I, I think Betty, you and I can both say this, but like having never owned any of my own intellectual property, I don't feel possessive of it. <laughs> I would like for whatever that is inside my brain that could even remotely be of use to society, I would like to share it with everybody. I don't really care so much who has it. Um, but I, part of me does understand that as corporations or institutes that own that intellectual property, they might want to um, maintain control of it to a certain degree. I would say industry is, the, they're the people that actually create the final product. Um, they're the ones that create the cure. They're the ones that create the medicine. Like, uh, you know, academia will discover, will maybe discover it, right? But then industry is the, the, the one that actually makes it a reality. You know, if, if one of these drugs that we've discovered in this paper is effective in clinical trials, um, I hope that that company will give donations of that drug to um, people in need. Um, I hope that the cost of that drug won't be such that, you know, only a small proportion of the population can afford it. Um, but, you know, I, I also feel a little powerless as an academic. You know, what what can I do to influence this? I, I'm honestly at a loss, and I think it's something that we have to think about more more closely. Yeah, it's good to kind of go and talk about the ethical and moral dilemmas that you know you guys face as basic scientists because I think that's one of your goals in, in this podcast series, right, is to have a greater understanding for the general public to know what it's like to be a basic scientist and what kind of things you guys experience and go through in addition to the work that you guys are all doing. You're looking at the big picture, and I think that's uh, a really positive thing. Thank you for joining us today in the second of our three-part mini-series on the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. We hope you join us next time for our final episode in the series where we look at antibodies and antibody testing. We want to extend a huge thank you to every person who is doing their part to keep us all safe, to feed us, to heal us, to keep our daily lives running, and to help support researchers and medical professionals who are working to combat the virus. Thank you to everyone who is doing their part in remembering to wash your hands, keep up social distancing, and wear your masks when you're out in public. We know that times are hard and confusing, so thank you so much for doing what you can to help. We hope that our podcast can be a source of information and maybe even entertainment during these challenging times. In our role as scientists, we always aim to be as accurate and precise as possible while still communicating plainly. But in case we didn't do this, if you have any questions or comments or concerns about what we said in the episode, or you just wanna say hi, please reach out to us at biologistbeingbasic at gmail.com or at biosbeingbasic on Twitter and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and we'll do our best to respond. If you like this episode and potentially want to hear more, please like and subscribe. We want to thank Professor Krogan, who is our boss and the director of QBI. 
We want to thank UCSF and the Gladstone Institutes who are our employers. And I would like to thank my friend and colleague, Dr. Mehdi Buhudu, for helping discuss this paper. And a special thanks to Gina and Andrew, who are our guests and friends and all around awesome human beings. Thank you to Alexa Rocorp and Michael McGregor, who are our sound engineers and producers. Our music has been Catalyst and Passport from Purple Planet Music. I have a random question. Why does the nose swab test have to be so darn deep? I've actually had a <laughs> SARS-CoV test and I did get the nose swab. It is uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I got I got the test too and it reminded me of getting a pap smear in my nose. For the guys who <laughs> don't know, but yeah, that's kind of accurate. <laughs> that seemed painful. Um, <laughs> yeah, a little. <laughs> SARS-CoV was better than this. <laughs>